Brothers, it is a joy to be with you once again and to be able to open God's Word with you and to proclaim it in your hearing. And so in light of that, I pray that you would open up in your copy of God's Word to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. And as you are doing so, as is our custom, please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word. Lamentations chapter 4, and I am going to read in your hearing the entirety of this lament, or the entirety of this chapter. Let us give our attention now to the Word of God. How the gold has grown dim, how the, gold, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled the fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. It was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations." Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. 
He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seats. There is a timeless principle that has proven itself true time and time again, over millennia, actually. It goes like this, as goes the leader, so goes the nation. And that dictum, it proves true both in life and in Scripture. As goes the leader, so goes the nation. Now let's flesh this out. A godly leader, that is to say, one who fears God and who seeks to lead in accord with God's law, one whose life is marked by truth and integrity and honor and conviction, that sort of leader is a blessing upon God's people. 2 Samuel 23 puts it like this, When one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he, that is the ruler, he dawns on them, that that is, dawns on his subjects, like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In other words, godly leadership brings life. By the same token, though, where godly leaders are absent, when, when men are replaced by women and children, when truth and integrity and honor and conviction are absent, that sort of leadership is evidence of God's curse upon a people. Think of it this way, beloved. Godly leadership is an oasis. Ungodly leaders or a desert. Rather than bring life, they only leave death in their wake. And church, I trust that we can all agree what we need more than ever is godly leadership. And when I say that, I'm not talking about just in Olympia or in D.C., though that is true, but I'm talking about in our pulpits and in our homes. This matters because leadership matters. It is critical for the health of God's people. Now, as we turn our attention to Lamentations chapter 4, to really make sense of what is before us, we have to grasp something of the leadership structure that God put into place, one that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. So culturally, And civically and spiritually, God had ordained three distinct offices. Now granted, there were some overlap, that is true, but these offices were, in a lot of ways, separate. And they were intended by God to offer some sense of stability for the people of God. Those offices, church, were these, prophet, priest, and king. And these God-ordained leaders acted like guardrails. They were to keep the people from going over the cliff. But what happens when guardrails rust, when they warp, 
when they cease to do their job. In a word, disaster. In a lot of ways, that's really what makes Lamentations 4 unique. Here's what I mean by that. Previously, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've seen a lot of ways the same picture, haven't we? We've seen ruin and regret. We've seen darkness and distress. Remember, this is lamentation. So these are laments, right? These poems are the sacred sorrow of the soul. And we've been confronted with that reality from Lamentations 1-1 on. But here, as we turn to chapter 4, we are confronted with something else. We discover not just sorrow, but really the downward slide of leadership in all three offices. And how the dereliction of these leaders births the destruction of God's people. Let me just state it outright. Lamentations 4 lays the blame for God's judgment squarely on the shoulders of prophet, priest, and king. Now that judgment or the misery that God's people were experiencing, it is seen in rather stark ways at the front end of this fourth lament. In fact, this misery is captured with four horrifying pictures. The first is they are starving. Verse 3 records, Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. Verse 4 clarifies, The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. As Jeremiah sort of peeks his head out of the cave from where he is composing his laments, all he sees as he looks out upon his people is skin and bones. People are withering away. They are inches from death. This leads to the second haunting picture, and that is that they are scavenging. Verse 5 reveals the great contrast. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Catch this, beloved. Where there was once feasting, now there is only famine. Gold has been replaced with Tupperware. Gucci for ashes, beauty for disfigurement. The starving and scavenging of the people only highlights how they are shriveled. Verses 7 and 8 paint the ugly picture. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. But of course, that was then. This is now. Verse 8, now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. And notice here, what we are talking about is the nobility. If this was true of the so-called celebrities of the day, imagine for a moment how dreadful it must have been for the common citizen. 
The misery of God's people reaches something of a fever pitch in verse 10. I say that because you see how the people of God have turned into outright savages. More specifically, Jeremiah keys in on the mothers. Why? Well, because the mothers are supposed to be the life givers. And here in verse 10, they are portrayed as life takers. Verse 10 exposes this. The hands of compassionate women, we are told, have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Now, redeeming grace, that is but a quick snapshot. More than enough, though, I trust, to expose something of the miserable condition that God's people were under. But again, here's where it takes a turn. God quickly points the hot lamp of interrogation upon the leaders of the nation. You quickly discover that the misery of the citizens is owing to the failure of the leadership. For example, in verse 20, God singles out the king. We read, granted, somewhat enigmatically, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Well, that phrase, the Lord's anointed, that's an Old Testament reference to the Davidic king. Historically speaking, this is King Hezekiah, rather King Zedekiah. He was the king who reigned during the Babylonian invasion. And Scripture goes out of its way to let us know that King Zedekiah was a vacillating and corrupt king. Then in verse 13, both the prophet and priest are mentioned explicitly. And if you look at verse 13, they are not commended, but condemned. So church, why has God unsheathed His sword and brought it to bear upon His people? And the short answer is, well, for sin. And and that is true. But more specifically, God has wielded His sword of judgment because of the sin of the nation's leaders. The prophet, priest, and kings are altogether corrupt. And it has provoked God to pour out His just judgment upon them and upon those whom they reign over. Now back up real quick. Here's what we know, at least in terms of these three offices that God ordained. When it comes to the king, he was to be set apart to God, wholly consecrated for God's purposes. He was not to rule according to his own vain imagination, but in accord with God's law you will remember that one of the requirements of the king, what was he supposed to keep by his bedside? A copy of the law of God. And not just a copy of the law of God, but what? A handwritten copy of the law of God. Why? So that he would know it inside and out. So that he would inhale and exhale the very truth of the law of God. That was his responsibility. As the ruler of God's people on earth, all that he was to do was to be done in fear of God. 
And therefore, in a lot of ways, the king was to be an example to the people of God. The the citizens, the nation, should have looked at their king and said, now there is one who is utterly devoted to serving Yahweh. Then we would think of the prophet. The prophet, too, had a remarkable privilege and responsibility. What was it, you ask? Well, the prophet was to be God's very mouthpiece. We have to understand, the prophet was called upon to speak forth the Word of God. This is important. The prophet was not called to speak and to sort of give vent to his own opinions on a particular matter. His subjective liver shivers were of no consequence. His job, his only job, was to speak forth the Word of the true and living God no matter the cost. So that when the prophet spoke, God spoke. And when God remained silent, the prophet was supposed to put his hand over his mouth. Now speaking of the prophets, it's it's common for you and I to often think of prophets in terms of them basically being those who just sort of always predicted the future. And don't get me wrong, the prophets did do that. But even a cursory reading of the prophets in sacred scripture will reveal that the vast majority of the prophets' ministry was actually taken up not with prophecy, but with prosecution. In other words, the prophet's main ministry consisted in applying the law of God to the people of God right in front of him. So, for instance, the prophet might say, God has said in his law, this is how you are to live, but you are not doing that, so you must repent. That was their main job. And as you can imagine, that was not always a popular job, especially if the nation was declining spiritually, which it obviously was in Jeremiah's day, hence the judgment of God upon them. Finally, you have the priests. This calling was a sacred calling indeed. It might be helpful to think of it this way. While the prophet stood in between God and the people and faced the people speaking for God, the priest stood in between God and the people facing God serving the people. In other words, the prophet had his back to God, but the priest was face to face with God. What would the priest spend most of his time doing, you ask? Well, the answer is simple. He would spend his day in prayer or offering sacrifices or or working in the temple. And the point not to be missed is that all of his life, all of his calling was to be done in the very presence of God. What all of this means, and it's really highlighted in the whole book of Leviticus, is this. Holiness was non-negotiable. Because the priest 
lived and exercised and carried out his duties in the very presence of God, the priest had to be completely set apart and given over to God, lest the wrath of God burst forth and consume that priest. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. Now that all too brief summary gives you something of an outline when it comes to the duties assigned to prophet, priest, and king. That was their calling. But as Jeremiah 4 points out, everything at this point has come apart. It's all undone. The kings had forsaken divine guidance and courage, and instead they had become cowards and apostates. This is more than alluded to there in verse 17. I say that because rather than lead the nation in repentance and seek God's favor, the king made an alliance with Egypt, trusting in chariots and soldiers for salvation. Or to use the language of Philip Reich in that great Presbyterian minister, he so helpfully put it this way, the king sought political solutions to spiritual problems. The prophets were no better. Where once the prophets were known for their fear and trembling and and speaking forth the word of God, think Isaiah, now, as verse 13 reveals, they were known for their sins, plural. What lies behind such a foreboding description, you ask? Well, they refused to speak the word of God, and instead they prophesied from their own vain imaginations. Why? Well, for this simple reason. They were gripped by a fear of man, a spirit of pride, and a love of money. Then you had the priests. Those who were to be regarded as holy were altogether stained. Verse 13 again testifies. There we read of the iniquities, plural, of the priests. We learn from other passages that the priest not only, in, uh, not only failed to instruct the people in the law, but neither did they rebuke the people when they sinned. So in a lot of ways, you could say that the priesthood had failed doubly. They didn't disciple, nor did they discipline. This whole epidemic, specifically the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of the priests, it is, succinctly stere- it is succinctly stated in Jeremiah 5. There, Jeremiah cries out this way, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. What is that, Jeremiah? He says, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. And then, with tears in his eyes, Jeremiah adds, and my people love to have it so. Now, at this point, I think it would be good for us to pause. I actually think it would serve us well. I say that because Lamentations 4 spells out the utter degradation of the leadership in Israel and the catastrophic judgment that came about as a result. But the question that we should be asking is something like this. How did this happen? How did this leadership, prophet, priest, and king, how did it get so rotten? 
And of course, the easy answer is sin. And that's true. I have no intention of minimizing that. You, Christian, must be convinced that sin is all corrosive and it will ruin and eat every single thing that it touches. That's true. But I am persuaded it would serve us well to try and reflect upon not just sin, but some specific sins that tend to corrupt leaders. So maybe it would be good to think about us. And by us, I mean the local church. Now granted, we are not ancient Israel. The New Testament church does not consist with offices of prophet, priest, and king. And if you happen to find a church that does, run. But local churches do have leadership. Churches are made up of pastors, elders, deacons, and members. So given how vital leadership is, I think the question remains a valid one. How might leadership in a church, and here I'm thinking mainly of the the pastors, the elders, how might those leaders go sideways? How might things get wonky? Well, allow me to suggest a couple of ways. A couple of ways the sin of bacteria grows in the petri dish of a church's leadership. For starters, the congregation or the leaders, they might ignore sin for the sake of the brand. This has been a reoccurring theme, unfortunately, among many megachurches that have failed in recent decades. The man, whoever he is, is regarded as the brand. And so you are not allowed to ever raise an eyebrow lest you bring disrepute upon the brand. So much so that it has come out that there are even those who have required other leaders or people in the congregation to sign non-disclosure statements. Another thing a congregation or other leaders, another thing that might happen is that public sin is not dealt with publicly. This too is a massive problem. Public and heinous sin is so quickly swept under the rug. Why? Well, because a leader is charismatic and he has the ability to put warm rear ends in seats. But we need to recognize that Christ has told us how to deal with this stuff in His Word. And when we stiff-arm Christ's Word, we do so to our own peril and destruction. Here's another reason a congregation or its leaders might not deal with sin. They might wink at such and such a sin as an excuse for their own sin. In other words... Everyone has skeletons in the closet, so we are told, and they don't want theirs drug out. So they bite their lip, fearing that to do otherwise might very well bring their sins out in plain sight as well. But I, I get maybe to say just a bit more practically speaking, one elder isn't going to call foul on another elder for being addicted to pornography if that first elder is having an affair, right? Because you don't want people to start poking around. Another way a congregation or its leaders might give leadership a pass is that people justify their sin because everyone is friends. 
This is the whole yes-men at its finest, or I should say, at its worst. So elders are quickly covering for other elders. Sin is swept under the rug. It's never dealt with. Mr. Jones gets a pass. Mr. Smith gets the hammer. Why? Well, Mr. Jones is our friend. Mr. Smith is not. Now, redeeming grace for these reasons and countless more. Sin, like cancer, spreads in a church. And when it does, it kills. It always kills. It can't not kill. And when sin spreads among leadership, it is particularly lethal. Again, that's what Lamentations 4 puts front and center. Remember, as goes the leader, so goes the nation. As goes the prophets, priests, and king, so goes the nation. As goes the elders, so goes the church. That's why this stuff is so important. The blast radius for the sins of leadership is less like a bottle rocket and more like an atomic bomb. So then what is a church to do when leadership is corrupt? Or to turn our attention back to Lamentations 4, what must the nation do in the face of judgment? And there's only one answer. And that one answer is only one word. And it is the word repent. Everything else at this point is vanity. Let me be clear. Apart from repentance and calling upon Christ, everything else is vanity. And the tragedy, beloved, of our passage this morning, the one that is in front of us, is this. Because the leadership in Israel was so thoroughly corrupt, they refused to repent. Which means that everything was hopeless. This all comes into clear focus, namely in verses 17 through 20. In fact, all that remained for them was no deliverance, no escape, and no hope. Verse 17 paints the picture of no deliverance. We read, tragically, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for who? God? No. We watched for a nation which could not save. Like I said earlier, rather than repent, the people of God ran. And they ran away from God and they ran into the arms of another nation. We know this from the book of Jeremiah. Here, they reached out to the nation of Egypt. Think about this. The people of God reached out to Egypt, seeking salvation in the bosom of their arch nemesis, rather than reaching out to the hand of their beloved father. If that wasn't bad enough, there was also no escape. No amount of political alliances would stop what was coming. Half-hearted religious measures would prove futile. And the machinations of a desperate people would amount ultimately to nothing. Truth be told, there was no escaping the judgment of God. Verses 18 and 19 give us a glimpse. 
We read, they dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. And then verse 19 adds, Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. No deliverance and no escape means no hope. The dominoes had already begun to fall. The wheel of God's judgment had already started to turn. And there were no breaks. Even kings, as we saw earlier, were cut down. Verse 20 records, The breath of our nostrils, the the Lord's anointed, remember that, the the king of the land, the the, the Lord's anointed was captured in our pits, uh, rather in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. But of course they didn't. Their derelict king provided no shadow, and rather than live among the nations, they were destroyed. And his death, the death of King Zedekiah, the king of Jerusalem, his death was the last nail in the coffin for the people of God. Remember, as goes the leader, so goes the nation, which means that Jerusalem was headed for the grave. Beloved, I think what is glaringly obvious at this point is that the ancient people of God needed faithful leadership. A prophet, priest, and king who would actually please God. Consider, they needed a prophet who would boldly speak to them the true word of God. They were in great need for a priest who would offer a sacrifice that would truly atone for their heinous sin. They were desperate for a king who would rule and reign in truth and in righteousness. And apart from such a prophet, priest, and king, they would most certainly perish, and they did perish. Unless there be any confusion, we are in the same need today be very clear, Babylon is not our greatest threat. Neither is China, neither is Russia. Those are not our greatest threats. Our greatest threat is sin, death, and hell. And so what we need is one who would do for us what we could never do for ourselves and deliver us from our sin and death and hell. And so let me encourage you this morning, church. We have such a one in Christ. In fact, the very offices of prophet, priest, and king, they find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. Listen, uh, listen for example, to the Baptist Catechism, which helps flesh this whole thing out. In a section dealing with Christ as our Redeemer, question 26 asks, What offices does Christ perform as our Redeemer? This is how the Catechism answers. Christ, as our Redeemer, performs the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so the Catechism rightly puts its thumb on this whole thing, right? So so these Old Testament offices culminate 
in Jesus Christ. The Catechism then asks, how does Christ perform the office of a prophet? We are told, Christ performs the office of a prophet in revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. So Christ, who is the Word of God, speaks to us the Word of God. Right? Christ, who is the Gospel, makes the Gospel known to us. From there, the Catechism asks, how does Christ perform the office of a priest? The answer, Christ performs the office of a priest by offering Himself as a sacrifice for our sin to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and by making continual intercession for us before God. Let's not miss this, church. Christ is the unique priest in that he is both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. Right? We know that Christ offers himself for us. He does so on our behalf. Or as John the Baptist confessed, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next question asked in the Catechism How does Christ perform the office of a king? Listen to the answer. Christ performs the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now again, that's how the Baptist Catechism puts it. Listen now to how the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes all of this. This is from chapter 8, paragraph 10. The number and character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Here's the point in all of this, church. The story of Scripture is one that is littered with both good and bad prophets, priests, and kings. For every Moses, there is a Hananiah. For every Samuel, a Nadab and Abihu. For every David, an Ahab. And even the best of these men are simply men at best. They were still sinners. They still fell short of the glory of God, just like each of us do. What we need is Christ. In fact, all of these men, warts and all, were designed by God to point us to Christ, who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And apart from him, we are doomed. Just as we witnessed ancient Israel having no deliverance, no escape, and no hope, so the same is true for us without and apart from 
the Lord Jesus. So, beloved, what I want you to see then is that Lamentations 4 shows us how critical leadership is. And in so doing, it shows us how glorious Christ is. It it causes us to point forward and to look ahead in redemptive history in anticipation of a true prophet, a true priest, a true king. Christ is the true prophet. From Him we hear the very voice of God. More than that, contained in Christ is the very gospel of God itself, which is the salvation of our souls. Christ is also the true priest. He and He alone offered Himself as the one and only sacrifice that could truly take away our sin and fit us to be in the very presence of God. And Christ is the true King. By His Word and Spirit, He rules and reigns over us for our good and for His glory. So I implore you, church, to look to Him. To hear Him. He is your prophet. To find forgiveness in Him, for He is your priest. And to rest safely in Him. For he is your king, who despite your treason has seen fit in his grace to spare you. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the mediator between you and men, the man Christ Jesus. We thank you that in Christ we have our prophet and our priest and our king. We pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning, that you would grant assurance where it is lacking, that you would cause us to to rest our weak and weary souls in your hands, the hands of our Father, as we look to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. It's not uncommon, church, for Oakley to ask